What's up, guys? In this podcast, we're talking how to sell your photography prints. And there are a lot of questions out there. It can be a little bit confusing. I brought in Kevin to talk with me on this one. Kevin Jordan's joining us. And we've both had experience doing this. And, and there's a lot to know before you actually get started. So we're going to break this down kind of step by step in how you should approach selling your photography prints, namely at art shows, fine art shows, art fairs, those kind of things. What shows should you actually be getting involved in based on your pricing and how you should market that when you're actually at the show, sales tactics. We're gonna get into all of those things in this podcast. Kevin, why don't you give us an idea of your journey in the past one to two years selling prints at shows? Yeah, absolutely. So I, like you said, I, I started about two years ago. I just finished up, I think my second full art show season. Um, I knew I wanted to get into it. I knew it was going to be a bit of a learning curve. And, you know, the, the first one starting out was, you know, I set the bar low for myself and it went about as poorly as it could have, but great learning experience. And once you kind of have those, those pain points as you go along, you really start to, to get the tricks down and figure out what works and what doesn't. So it's definitely a, a bit of a steady climb to, to feel like you're getting proficient at it. But, you know, the past one or two years have been, you know, a good progression for me. And so if anyone's interested in getting going with these, I would recommend, you know, at least plan on doing a, a year's worth, maybe four or five, one year to kind of get started, um, figure out what works over sort of the off season, and then try and implement those in a second year before you really decide for yourself, you know, you know, this is great, or this isn't for me. That's a great point too. And I think even if it's not for you, it's good to try it out and just kind of get your feet wet in it and, and giving yourself that, that buffer of several shows under your belt to decide that like your first show is, you know, when you start anything, it's going to be bad, right? Uh, so you want to kind of progress and get better at the strategies because you're going to get better at it as time goes on. When people are like, and, and I struggled this with this too, when I was first starting doing some art shows is what are the actual, like, what do you need to start? And what are those startup costs? Yeah, that that's a big part of it. And I mean, I think the first thing before anything else is you've got to be comfortable that the product that you're going to be selling is good enough to sell both in your eyes and potentially in a customer's eyes. I mean, if you've you haven't been to a point yet where you've maybe sold a print to someone that isn't, you know, related to you or, or a close friend that, that would be a solid first step. I mean, you can always jump in and, you know, hope that happens at the art shows themselves. But um, for me personally, like I, I took a long time to get going with the sales side of things because I wanted to, you know, I'm not a natural salesman. I wanted to feel good that, you know, what I was selling, I was proud of because there was no way I was going to be able to stand there and try and convince somebody that it was a good photo if I thought it wasn't. Um, so that's, that's definitely step number one. Um, beyond that, you've got to look into sort of building up inventory. Um, and this can be, this can be a bit of a pain. So it's, it's a matter of deciding, you know, what items you think you want to sell. You can go as small as, you know, printing your images on a magnet or a postcard or a greeting card going all the way up to like big metal prints. They're all going to have their their costs to get going. Obviously the smaller things are gonna be a smaller upfront cost. You'll also have you know smaller revenue and profits to go with it. So it's a matter of trying to think out you know, 
like you said, what kind of range of, you know, price range of products you want to be in? Is it going to be the really small stuff for crafts fairs? Is it going to be the bigger stuff, the sort of, you know, show-stopping pieces for art shows? Um, that's going to be a big startup cost to, to get going with. And then beyond that, it's your setup. It's, you know, do you need a, a 10 by 10 pop-up tent? Do you need tables? Do you need, you know, uh, an extra way to transport the stuff? I know we'll get into that a bit more later, but there could be a lot of things that kind of get into it. I mean, looking back at, at how I got going, first things I purchased were a 10 by 10 pop-up tent. I think I have a, a year max is the brand. Um, I wouldn't skimp on that. You're more than likely going to find shows with not ideal weather at some point or another. And you don't want to be at the ones where, you know, you've got strong winds and your tent just blows over. I was at one earlier this summer in August when, uh, strong line of thunderstorms came through mine held up great and i'm so glad i spent the extra probably 100 bucks on it because we walked around the second morning of the fair there were some tents that were upturned there were ones that had collapsed um, i also feel lucky because one of the ones that collapsed was also the brand i have so you know nothing's foolproof but if you can go for the durability um because that's gonna you know both protect you and it's gonna protect all of your inventory too uh, after that, it's going to be, how are you going to display it? Is it going to be just on tables? Do you need it to hang somewhere? Um, I personally have, uh, mesh panels on three sides of my tent. I started off with two just cause I wasn't sure, you know, how deep into this I was going to get, um, ended up buying a third one for the back wall this past summer for my shows. Um, I'm really happy with that purchase for a couple of reasons. One, they're very light and they fold up very small. I'm putting all this stuff in the back of a Subaru. So it's a bit of like a Tetris puzzle to get it all in there. But if I had those big panels that didn't fold up well, it would really limit what I could do. Um, so they're a huge space saver, which is great. Um, they're very durable. Also, depending on what climate you're in, if you're in a hot environment, you know, they all just have little holes in them and you can hang things wherever you want to, just on little S hooks. And the fact that airflow can still get through those things on a hot summer day, you know, prevents your tent from kind of becoming a hot box, uh, which could, you know, be awful for you, but also prevent people from coming into your tent if it feels terrible. Yeah, that's true. And like when we're talking about getting started and costs to get started, I think it can be a little bit overwhelming, especially like you have to think about what you want to price each print at. And that gets into what kind of inventory that you want in your booth in these art shows, because I, I kind of go back to what you said about feeling comfortable about your photography like if you're not comfortable or confident in selling it because you don't think it's a good photo then you probably shouldn't have it in there number one and number two you have to take that same approach when you are pricing your your photography so you have to think about you know what it took to get that photo you have to think about what it's printed on the size um and really it comes down down to this for me, and this is kind of how I priced my photos when I was doing art shows is, do I want a lot of, of buyers for smaller priced things? Or do I want just a handful of buyers that I can have probably a little bit closer of a relationship with in selling them big pieces that are those show-stopping pieces? And while you don't, if you if you do go the higher price route, you're not going to get that like dopamine hit of every single time you make a sale, right? But when you do make a sale, like it kind of outweighs all the others because it is such a big 
overpriced item. Yeah, I would agree to that. And 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 to build on that too, you know, it's a matter of how consistent do you want your sales to be. The the last show I did was, you know, a fairly affluent area with, you know, a lot of what seemed higher priced items throughout the vendors. And I didn't make as, you know, I did okay at that show. I didn't make as many sales, but I made a couple of big ones compared to, you know, past shows that tend to be a lot more smaller prints. So it, it comes down to your level of comfort of both, you know, how much you want to spend on the big pieces up front. And like you said, how often do you want to sell? Uh, the one strategy that I decided to take, which I think could be beneficial is if you're, you know, you're not sure yet, which are the big things that are, are going to sell. You can always test them out with smaller prints. If you have one that's selling really well, maybe that's one you go bigger on. Um, I also will, so I'll say in my booth, I have um, from eight by 12 matted prints, 12 by 18 matted prints, and then a couple of various sizes of metal prints that I'll hang on the wall and have be the sort of, um, you know, more eye catching pieces. Those ones that are on the wall, the metal prints, I don't sell those specific ones off the wall. If anyone's interested, I'll place an order and I'll ship it to them. Um, I've never had anyone complain about that. And if they've ever questioned it, my response always is, you know, these come to every show with me. They've been beat up a little bit. Like, I want you to have one that is, you know, fresh out of the box with no potential, you know, scratches or dings or anything. And the couple times I've had to say that, no one's ever had any issue with it. So it's a nice way to keep your upfront costs down too. So maybe you have four, five, six big pieces that you put around the outside of your booth to sort of keep it, you know, eye catching for the people outside. And if you do that, you spend that money once. And if someone likes them, you can just order it on the back end and, you know, prevent yourself from needing to put that upfront cost. Yeah. And I do want to get into like how to bring people into your booth a little bit later in our conversation. Uh, but that's great advice. You know, something that you talked about just a second ago is getting into um, a, a show at an affluent area, right? Um, and that kind of breaks it down. We were just talking about pricing, you know, pricing also determines what kind of show that you should probably do because they're artists that display their work at all different kinds of things. I go to the farmer's market in the small town that I live in, and there are woodworkers there, different artists displaying at the farmer's market, all the way up to, you know, the shows that I would go for and, and sell prints for like $900, $950 a piece for were in these really nice private schools around Nashville, where they had the, 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 the funds to put towards a really, really nice art show in an affluent area. So when it comes to the lower price items, those are more probably more directed to like the craft fairs, the farmers markets, and then the big metal prints you're pushing at affluent areas. No. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. I've, I've decided, you know, so far not to really do much with like the really small stuff, like the magnets and stickers and, and things like that. Um, it's just all personal preference. It's to me a, a decent amount of work to to have that stuff in your inventory um, and to bring along and stuff like that. I'm I've just decided that I'm okay doing you know less transactions, but for higher price stuff, it's it's just what works for me. Um, but that said, though, if if you want to have kind of all that stuff in your arsenal, you can pick and choose what you bring to each show. You know, if it's a smaller, like you said, kind of farmers market or craft fair, it it's likely that 
the smaller stuff is going to be what sells. I mean, if you think about what you're looking for, if you go to a farmer's market, if you're trying to grab some vegetables and, you know, a coffee, you're probably not in the mindset. That's what I'm going for. Yeah. And, and, and it's not likely that you're going to get some vegetables, a coffee and, you know, a $400 print. If it's something that you see and really speaks to you, then, then maybe it does happen. But I would say on average, it's going to be probably the lower price to mid price items that do well at those. And if you go to the fine art fairs, that's where it's going to be the bigger stuff. So that's been one of my learning curves as I've gone along um, in terms of show selection. You know, the very first one I did was was honestly a really good fair. It was um, put on by a by one of my local coffee shops. And, you know, the conditions weren't great. There were maybe 30 mile an hour winds, which I think was a big detriment for me because this was back in early 2021. And, you know, there were still supply chain issues. I had ordered my mesh panels and they didn't show up in time. So my game plan was to just try and hang my metal prints from the side of the uh, canopy tent, which you know, just on like fishing line, which didn't work in 30 mile an hour winds because those would have become like metal death frisbees. Yeah. So at that point I was limited to just one small table with a few prints on it. And, you know, it, it didn't go great in terms of, um, you know, how my uh, booth looked in general, but also it, it really wasn't the venue for that big stuff anyway. You know, I kind of did different, types of shows I went and went through my first year and, you know, talked to a few people who have been doing this for a long time too. And what I kind of learned on my own and the recommendations that I got from them was very much, you know, I was a better fit for fine art fairs because I had the kind of stuff that when people came into the booth, that's more the mindset that they would need to be in if they were looking for one of my photos. Hey, real quick, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, you know what, I could actually do this. I have art shows, I can sell prints in my home area, and you just want to get started, go to My Photo Hustle right now and watch a free masterclass on how to turn your passion for landscape photography into a side hustle. Again, that's myphotohustle.com and sign up to watch that free masterclass right now. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah, and that brings up like a great point too of going to those instead of kind of other ones and having a good fit for your photography. But also it brings up a great point and this is something that uh, somebody told me when we were at these shows. It was funny, I uh, was just down a few booths from them but we ended up hanging out and talking for like the whole three days of the show and she was great but one of the things that she told me that made total sense about these larger ticket art fairs or art shows was that people need to see you like consistently at them uh, because if people are going to collect photos from you or maybe buy more than one they kind of want to see that you're being consistently there and get to know you that way because they're looking to not only like buy work for their home, but also kind of build a relationship with you and, and gain some trust with you as well. Um, and I know you've talked about some uh, interactions with some people that you saw at, at shows over and over that you were next to. Yeah, and it's funny, actually, I didn't get that specific advice. But based on the people that I talked to, that makes perfect sense. There was there was one I did last December. Uh, it was an indoor holiday fair. And honestly, it didn't go great. 
um, that was one of those ones that was very much more kind of craft focused. People wanted ornaments and, you know, food and things like that. There was a guy across from me who he did a type of like sort of wood burning art. Um, the stuff was great. And he said he'd been doing those types of shows for decades, 30 years or so. And when we packed up at the end of that, that two days, he said, this is potentially the worst one I've had in about 30 years of doing these. Um, but throughout that time, you know, it was pretty slow. We had time to chat and he said, you know, I have other shows that I go to year after year and I have people drive up from like New York city to, the, to Rhode Island to come see me. I have people come from other areas that I've just sold things to over the years and they want to come back and, and try and find more and establishing those relationships can be really important. Yeah, no doubt. When you're getting into a show like that, let's say you're being consistent about it. One of the things that I was always afraid of, this never happened to me, thank goodness, was like a show cancellation or something to where I couldn't be at my booth. Um, you know, I've had, I've had, I've played sports my whole life. So I've had like random surgeries that I've had to have and not been able to, to do what I needed to do. What do people need to know about cancellation policies or what you're actually committed to when you sign up for one of these? Yeah. And, and that's a good point too, because, you know, we talk about these higher end art fairs that you might have the higher end buyers. It's also going to cost more to participate in those. So for, for those who don't know these, you know, markets will typically have some kind of booth fee that you have to pay. If it's a juried art fair, which means that when you apply, you may or may not get in. Um, there's sometimes an application fee as well. So it's important to sort of, if you can talk to people, read reviews, you know, read their information about how they run things, because, you know, this, this past year was really unusual weather up in my area. We had, I think one of like the five wettest summers on record, every single show that I went to at some point it downpoured. And if it didn't downpour the one that it didn't, it was a hundred degrees. So, you know, I, I had one that was canceled during that time. Thankfully, I didn't have anything happen to me, but these were definitely, you know, conversations I had with my partner, you know, thoughts I had during, you know, sort of the second half of the pandemic when we started was, okay, if, if we get COVID, if we get injured, you know, we'll have to cancel these. How much money are we out if that happens? Some places will allow you to, to cancel within a certain amount of time and they can refund you. A lot of them will have waiting lists and if they can fill that spot, they'll refund you. Some they'll fill that spot and won't refund you. Or if you cancel too close to the show, you can either lose that money or lose your good standing with the, the fair itself. They all kind of vary a little bit, but it's always good to have contingency plans. I say that knowing that I don't really, because I know that it's, it's me and my fiance going to these. And if one of us gets, gets sick or especially me, you know, it, it'd be tough for just one of us to do it on our own. So it, those are definitely things to consider. The other cancellation issue I had was, you know, like I said, it was a wet summer. We had one where I, I kind of already knew that it wasn't the right show for me. I had three dates at that show throughout the year. It was a, a reoccurring market in Boston. And there was one show where I looked at the weather report all week leading up to it. And it said rain on Sunday, rain on Sunday, rain on Sunday. And I emailed them and said, so what's the, what's the plan for cancellation if the weather's bad? And I assumed it was going to be like just the day before. Um, they emailed me back and said, 
oh, we'll inform you at 5 a.m. the morning of the fair. And and I know we'll get into this too, but me loading all my stuff into my car is my least favorite part about all of this. I live in an apartment building, fourth floor, no one near, nowhere near where I can park. So it's it's an ordeal to get everything out and packed up. So knowing that I was going to have to do that and then potentially have them cancel was not my favorite. They ended up not canceling. We got there, we got an hour of the market in, and then it started to downpour. Like it said it was going to the entire week. And then they walked around to us and said, oh, we're going to cancel and refund you. You guys can all pack up. So it's good that they refunded us, but I would have much rather not go through the, you know, couple hours of setup and breakdown and transport and everything getting soaked uh, to have that experience. So those are things to consider when you decide which ones you want to do for sure. Not ideal. Definitely. Now, not my favorite. <laughs> Something you said kind of triggered my memory getting into these. And when I was first starting the application fee and actually applying to some of these, um, obviously there are websites that you can find these through and how to apply. But one of the things that surprised me was that not only was there an application fee, but they wanted four like high res photos of my booth setup. Um, yeah. And on my first show, like you don't have these photos of a booth setup because you've never done one before. So you have to think about when you first get those panels, the boards, you have to kind of mock set up your own little booth, maybe in your house, in your yard, something like that, and get it all set up so that you can take these photos. That was something that like blew my mind when I was first starting. Yeah, and I, I hadn't considered that either. The The first one I had applied to didn't require that. Um, the second one for later on in that first year did. And I I may have procrastinated a bit and put in the application the night it was due. And at that point, I wasn't setting up the booth. So I, I wrote in my application, like, listen, this is my first year doing these. I just got my new setup in the mail and haven't set it up yet. But like, I put in screenshots from online of the manufacturer's website of what it is and just said this is what it's going to be um to at least show them like i had the you know the high quality setup and hopefully they would just trust that it would look good and that ended up working out i only tried that once though that's great that's a really good idea actually now i i want to hear about the transportation how do you get from one place to another and and i have two kind of horror stories for this okay so <clears throat> and this this was by far my least favorite part too because the whole time i was cringing taking all of these high dollar prints with me in the back of a I, I don't even remember i think we had like a jeep commander at the time which is a pretty okay. big suv um but when i got to my first show it was at this really nice private school and I got out and my biggest piece had like a scratch down it because I didn't fully cover it when I was taking it. And I was just, I was devastated. It all turned out fine uh, because it was a pretty good show, but that was one thing. And then the next show that I did was traveling two and a half hours east into Knoxville at another good uh, fine art show. And when I got there, transporting my things into the show, all right, terrible outcome of the show. And I actually, when I was uh, setting up, I turned around and one of my pano prints knocked off the pottery of the booth next to me. 
And even though I didn't make any sales that show, because it was a terrible show for some reason, I then had to pay this woman for her pottery that I broke. And I didn't even get to keep it because it was in pieces on the ground. You just gave me the anxiety sweats thinking about that happening. Yeah, it was terrible. Uh, yeah, no, and that's the kind of thing that you obviously don't want to happen. Um, a couple of points on what you just said. The, you know, transportation is definitely difficult. You've got to consider, you know, what do I need and... You know, how can I fit it in my car? If it's going to come down to you renting a trailer or renting a different car or maybe a U-Haul, depending on what your setup looks like, that's all going to be costs that you're going to have to try and make back at the show. Like you said, going two and a half hours, the location of the show matters too. If you don't want to drive that that morning and drive back that night, you've got to find a place to stay. So those hotel costs will eat in too. I've only done ones these past couple of years that were within reach of either my home or you know, a friend's home. So the farthest one I did for me was probably about two hours. And luckily I had a friend that lived about 10 minutes away. So I chose it based on that. Um, but I've talked to people at those fairs who were like, you know, we'd love to come back to this one, but it was, you know, two nights at a hotel. That was a few hundred dollars. The booth fee was another three, $400. And, you know, right there where, you know, if we have an average day, we might be breaking even. So that's important to know. And the other thing, you know, there's always a chance that something of yours breaks, something that somebody else's breaks. Like I've been in ones with 30 mile an hour winds and you wouldn't believe the things that were flying all around. So in terms of your setup, bring duct tape, bring heavy stuff. You know, when they say you need, you know, 30, 40 pounds on each leg of your tent, just do that. It's, it, it's, it's worth it. Cause the last thing you want is your, your tent with all your stuff in it to turn into a sale and just start flying around the marketplace. Um, but that said, though, some of these places will require you to get insurance um, for just kind of general liability. I, I, I can't remember any of the names off the top of my head right now of um, certain providers, but you can get stuff for an entire season for maybe 100 bucks, and that will cover you against stuff like that if you need to make a claim. Um, I think I ended up getting mine through Professional Photographers of America. They've got, you know, I already had a membership there, and I think if you upped it to the more like premium membership, they included event insurance in it. And that ended up being the best deal for me. You know, they offer gear insurance too. So if, you know, somebody isn't already signed up for that might not be a bad thing to look into because the last thing you want is to have something happen, ruin all, ruin all of your stuff, somebody else's stuff. And, you know, then you're doing your next few fairs, trying to build back up your inventory and make back the money you lost. Yeah, definitely. When you're transporting your stuff and in terms of not probably making it the most break proof as possible. Are you, what are you using to drape over them? What are you using them to hold them in place in your car? Cause you talked about your, your, the back of your Subaru is a Tetris. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've, I've got pictures and I'm, I'm, I'm pretty proud of how, how I figured out making it work. But I mean, a lot of that was trial and error. So, um, like I said earlier, I have, uh, eight by 12 prints that are in 12 by 16 mats. Those just so happen to fit perfectly in reusable grocery bags. I actually just have two grocery bags of those that I bring with me and they fit easily behind a seat for the bigger stuff, both the metal prints, which are up to 20 by 30 or 24 by 36. Um, those were actually delivered from the, the metal print lab that I use in flat boxes that just stack perfectly in the back of my car. And so those go on the bottom right next to that. I have my tents and the mesh panels on top. And 
I didn't plan it out this way, but I just kind of figured out how to make it all work perfectly and use every inch of space. But that might take some trial and error to figure out how to fit it all and what works best for you. The lucky part is, is that there's no exact way you have to set up your booth. There's a lot of different ways you can do it. So if you're limited by space in certain ways, you can kind of tailor your booth for that. Those flat boxes are great. Um, they, they take up so much less space than like a bin. You know, you can use every inch of space in there. They're like, I mean, inch and a half thick at most. So, you know, while they make up, they may take up a footprint flat, you can put them down at the bottom, stack more things on top of it. And it just pieces together really nicely. Yeah, definitely. There are two things. When I was in college, I was actually a mover. Um, I would move people from one house to another. And we did uh, national trips too. So moving people like out to Salt Lake, back to Nashville. And I learned a couple different hacks if you like wanted to go the cheaper route, I feel like, of protecting your stuff, especially if you have frames or metal prints or acrylic prints that can scratch. Those moving pads um are amazing and yeah, they're really they're like padded quilts almost insulated too and you can pad those and stack your metal prints up and the the quilts on the sides don't take up any extra room so that would be a really small footprint in your vehicle and then also uh if you do have something that's framed you can actually put your frame in um, like a square box that you would use for kitchen appliances, things like that, and then use moving tape to tape down the ends of them so that it doesn't slide out of either end. And that cardboard box holds it really tight in there if it's not a square, but if you just keep it flat and then that cardboard protects it from other things on top. Um, that's one of the, the ways that we would transport people's framed pieces from one place to another. And one of the hacks that, that I eventually um, adopted into my system after I had a big scratch on one of my frames, which was devastating to me. No, that, that's a really good perspective. And also a good point too, is that, you know, maybe you choose things that are the most durable. When I was starting this out, I was thinking, okay, for my big eye-catching pieces, do I want to do metal prints? Do I want to do acrylic? Those look relatively similar to an extent, but acrylic prints tend to be a little more fragile, a lot less scratch resistant. So I ended up going only metal because they they can take a little bit of a beating and still look good when you put them up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a great point too. When you said something a little while ago about booth setup, bringing people in, this is what I get really excited about, the marketing and sales part of art shows, talking to people, which when I first started them, granted, I was terrified to do, and I would say what every photographer will say on planet Earth, I'm terrible at sales. And you should never say that to a customer coming into your booth, number one. And number two, you should get comfortable talking with them and what I like to, to call prescriptive sales. So if you go into a doctor's office, you'll say, I have a broken wrist, right? They're going to be like, well, two, a few things we could do here. You could have surgery to put pins in it. You could wear a cast for however long it takes to heal, or you could just you know, take pain pills and eventually you're going to have to have surgery anyways. So those are kind of the prescriptive things that you have. So if somebody comes into your booth, you're talking to them about, you know, 
what do you need? Here's what I have to prescribe to you based on your need or your desire. And that's kind of how I reframe the way that I thought about sales to other people. And it's something that I still use for, for my photography and photography courses as well. But when it comes to bringing people into your booth, um, what are you doing to do that? What are some of the tactics that you've learned? This is honestly one of the things that I think I've thought the most about and maybe have the least definitive answers on hmm. because it's it's just such not a one-size-fits-all scenario. You're going to have different people at different shows. You're going to have different shows in different areas, different conditions. So this is the part where there's a lot of variables that you can't necessarily account for. I think the best that you can do is, you know, through trial and error and experience, just figure out what seems to work the most amount of times. So, and I think another thing that factors into this is, you know, are the people coming into your booth, do they want to talk to you? Are they introverts and they just want to kind of be able to look around without having anything said? Um, you're not necessarily going to be able to make a perfect situation for both of those types of people. So it's a matter of trying to read body language, trying to give, you know, them a chance to talk. So what I've tended to do is, you know, I have a table in the middle that's, you know, kind of long and skinny, and it creates sort of this, you know, natural flow for people to come into the booth, walk all the way around the table. Um, I have two bins on it. One faces one way, one faces the other way. So that way there's sort of a natural progression to sort of, you know, paw through one print, walk around the other side, paw through the other prints. Um, and then on the we'll say if you're walking to the booth the left side of the booth and on the back wall i have large metal prints and i tend to pick and choose which ones i put to the front entrance of the booth based on what i think might draw people in or catches and catch people's eye i've got a picture of this famous statue um in boston of the uh, the make way for ducklings ducks and it probably one of my top one or two best-selling photos. And I just know that those resonate with so many people and they're very recognizable in the area. So if I'm in the Boston area, that one's going out near the front. Um, I have, you know, a Milky Way photo of a very popular hike in New Hampshire that always tends to go out towards the front. Those types of things tend to work really well, but you've got to think about where you are too. When I was down in Connecticut, I switched out the New Hampshire photo for a Connecticut photo and that ended up bringing a lot of people too. So it's, it's trial and error, things like that, but also in terms of the people and like the sales that you talk about, it's, it's tough. You know, I'll tend to say hi to people when they come in and just say, you know, let me know if you have any questions. That way it kind of puts the ball in their court to talk to me if they want to. Um, Cause I think if you're, if you're having a person come into your booth who doesn't really want to chat, like they still may buy something, but they just want to have sort of a quiet experience before they do, then you might drive them away if you try and be too chatty. So it, it comes with experience, sort of reading body language and reading the people, but I think you have to adjust a little bit based on who they are. Definitely. And <clears throat> there are a couple, a couple things that I've learned from other photographers and even um, a painter who I was in a, an art show with. Let's do the photographer first. Um, Ryan Smith, who does a lot of photography sales and print sales, um, he was talking about gender differences, who's actually making the purchase. Um, and 
who's who's kind of lagging behind in the couple so most of the time like if you think about genders shopping the guy will kind of be out in front kind of trying to move things along and the 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 lady or uh the partner will be kind of lagging behind and she's the one who will explore the booth a little bit more than the guy right so what he was doing is actually putting um old photos of old cars in landscapes out front and that would make the guy stop in front of the booth and kind of explore a little bit more. Um, and that would allow both of them to kind of explore the booth a little bit. And not only that, but kind of spark up some conversations because Ryan's a car guy. If the, the guy is, an, is a car guy too, they could talk about that and relate. Now, the other thing that I heard uh, from a, a painter who did I was in a show with her. I did a, I did well in this show. She did like phenomenally. I was blown away. And after a few, you know, times of, of watching her every 30 minutes or so, she would rearrange her booth. Um, and what she had out front was about, uh, five pieces stacked one behind the other, just kind of leaned up against her booth at the very front. And she would walk over to that stack and rearrange it, put a different one out front. Um, and she said, she told me she's found that in a lot of these shows, people will pass by multiple times. So if you rotate your pieces out front, it looks like you're moving more inventory and it also gives them something new to look at when they pass by your booth. So a couple of little nuggets there for, for you to take. No, that's, I had not thought of that before or heard of that. And that's, that's a good idea. And the way I have my booth set up would be potentially difficult to do um when you walk into mine i've got those big metal prints on the right side i have these shelves that i put up and i put sort of the matted prints on those so my metal prints would i mean they're movable but they're mostly you know put where they are on the other side though those those matted prints could definitely rotate so that's a good yeah. idea because you know, and also too, you're going to have people walking in both directions coming by your booth at most shows. So they might come one way and maybe these things don't resonate with them, but when they come back, the ones on the other side do. So it, I agree that it's important to have different options because you never know. Yeah, definitely. When it comes to like getting down to making the sale, uh, I think the close is what terrifies most people have you found that there's a specific thing you say or something you do to kind of make that close happen because we can talk about photography all day long like we'll talk about hiking we'll talk about photos all day long but when it comes to that sale it, it's a little stressful well so i actually think that brings up two good points um one of the things that you have to try and learn as you go along is you know, some of these people are, I mean, I, they're genuine, like they're, they're coming to talk to you about your photography, about photography in general, you know, they might want to pick your brain and learn from you. And I mean, I, I love talking shop. That's great. Those are still pleasant conversations to me, but I've had times too, where I'm in one of those conversations and I see someone kind of lurking in the background who looks like they want to ask me a question. If you can't get out of that conversation to make the sale here, I mean, that, that could be a problem because ultimately it's why you're there is to sell the prints. So that's something to keep an eye out for in terms of sort of closing the sale. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's my strong suit to be perfectly honest. I think a lot of mine tend to come fairly naturally. It's me and someone talking about a print that, that resonates with them for some reason. 
and you know they might bring up just okay i'd love to buy this perfect if they're asking me specific questions about the material the different sizes things like that then i'll maybe try and and ask a few more questions and go into sort of that mode that you were talking about earlier where you're trying to solve a problem for them you know maybe they have a space in their house they're trying to fill maybe it's above a couch of a certain color you can guide them towards you know certain styles certain sizes things like that um that's an important thing to keep in mind but i think the main advice i can give is that you want to try and reduce friction in the buying process as much as possible if it's going to be complicated for them even if it's just a small step that's in between them and buying it it's going to reduce your chances of making the sale if you know someone says oh i'm going to go home and measure and you know i'll get back in touch with you and and order this print you know I, I get that a lot and maybe it lands maybe one out of five times but you know if they have a pretty good idea of what the size is you, maybe you say hey how about we put in this order now you know you can go home and confirm the size and if it ends up being different let me know and we'll switch the order up before it goes to print that that kind of thing is more likely to work than just relying on them to get back in touch with you. If oh, that if, if they leave your booth for you, huh? oh, if they leave your booth, it's like the the chances of them actually making the sale are drastically decreased. It it goes way down, and I mean, and if that strategy is too forward, instead of saying, "Oh, you get in touch with me," you can maybe set up a time to talk, get their contact information too, and follow up. Yes, they can still ghost you at that point, but it's still a step above just letting them walk away and just hoping and praying they come back. Yeah, that's a great point. I think one one thing that I've heard several times from people who do art shows is asking, once that conversation keeps going, you ask the person, is there a place in your home that you could see this, this print going? And while that is a very forward question, it does kind of transition the conversation from just talking shop to like, let's kind of get down to business. When that transaction does take place though, how are you accepting payments? Oh, th this is, this has been a big pain point for me, actually. Um, I think the best advice I can give in all of this is you need to have a lot of redundancy and how you can accept payments. Cause like how we just talked about with reducing friction, if you physically cannot make a sale, that's not good. So I, I mean, I have a cash box. I would say cash is the least common way to pay. Um, the cash, the cash sales I have had, I tend to be given larger bills. So that's something to keep in mind, you know, when you're figuring out what you need to make change. Um, I have a, a square card reader, which it connects to my phone via Bluetooth. Um, if you've got a credit card with a chip or with a tap, it should work for those. The problem is, is that they're very finicky, they're very inconsistent, and they also rely on you having wireless signal. So there's a lot of ways where that can go wrong. I was at a show last December where it was inside. We were in sort of like a, a gym sports complex type of place. If you had AT&T for your cell phone service, you could make sales no problem. If you had Verizon, it didn't go well. So we had vendors that were over and over walking out towards the door holding their phone up trying just to get the card to the card reader to actually accept payment even to do venmo it was still a problem so the this has been an issue for me i i was at a, a show this summer where a line of strong storms came through and knocked out cell phone reception 
so I ended up making a big sale at the end of that show, but it almost didn't happen because I tried to do it with a square reader. It didn't work. I try and get on my phone and go through my website. I couldn't get on that either. I ended up just getting the woman's email and just followed up and hope for the best. But, you know, that could have easily not worked out and you don't want to get in a situation where you can't complete the sale. So the system that I finally come up with is I have that square reader. That's my primary way of accepting payments if I can. Um, if that's not working, uh, I have an iPhone and the Square app actually allows you to tap a credit card just on the cell phone now and accept payment that way. I discovered that recently. That's a huge backup too. If you just don't have any reception, I mean, cash is always an option, but instead of that tap reader, they have Square um, MagStripe readers that plug directly into your phone. You could do it with iPhone or Android. And those ones in particular can accept offline payments. Um, that more or less covers you in every scenario. But the one thing to keep in mind is that if you don't find service again within a certain amount of time, I think it's 24 hours, you might lose all of those sales. So it, it, if you're doing a big one, it's something to keep in mind to make sure that actually goes through. Maybe you'd write down their credit card information as backup just in case. But it's that's been a problem for me during a lot of these. So it's something I don't want people to forget about when they're planning ahead. Yeah. And the, the no friction thing is huge because like, I think you have to accept the new technology, especially when we talk about like Venmo and things, cause that's a great way to accept payments, especially if we're talking about, if you feel like craft shows and farmers markets are a better way for you to get your photos out there. I feel like that would be great for those scenes. Um, but I can remember back to when I was actually just like first getting started in photography and I lost so many sales because I personally, and you know, lo and behold, shocker to me, I'm a stubborn person. So I only liked using PayPal. So in my mind, I was like, Hey, everybody likes using PayPal. And so I completely ignored Stripe payments and I finally got someone who emailed me and said, I would have bought if you had accepted Stripe payments, uh, which is just another way to input your credit card information. That's not PayPal. Um, and once I heard that I downloaded Stripe, got it, set up my account and my sales doubled. So you have to, you have to keep friction low to the customer. Definitely like, like what you said. Now for the, I haven't used, I think I have Stripe through my Squarespace website. Do they yeah. have a point of sale option too? They do. Yeah, they okay. do. It's just like the square reader where you can plug it into your phone. And, and that's the thing. There's, there are a lot of options out there. So, you know, I talked about square cause that's the one I've used, but definitely do your due diligence and check out for other options too. Um, I, like I said, I have a Squarespace website and what works well for me is that I can actually use the Squarespace app and the square reader will integrate into that. So that way, when I make a point of sale, it'll actually just go straight into my inventory through my Squarespace site. So it's just one less thing I have to worry about later, but sometimes that won't connect and I have to use the square specific app or something else. So I don't know that there's a, a perfect answer for anyone, but there are options out there and definitely have redundancies just in case. Cause like you said, if you can double your sales or just prevent losing sales, it's worth it. Yeah, definitely. As we land the plane here, maybe give us some advice to people who 
this is their first time doing a show or they're starting to think about selling their own prints, what should they do to prepare themselves? Um, a few things. I think you have to be okay with rejection, um, which I don't think is anyone's favorite, but it, it helped me to sort of take a step back and, you know, remove myself a little bit from the personal aspect of this, which is tough because I mean, we put a lot of, of effort and, you know, love into the stuff that we do and to then all of a sudden be dispassionate about it may not be the easiest thing, but you know, your photos, as much as you might like them or your friends and family, others might like them. They're not going to be for everyone. I have as many people come up to me and say, these are beautiful. I love these so much. You're very talented, which, you know, fills me with pride. I have just as many people go, how much is this? And I tell them and they go, those don't feel good, but they're going to happen. Um, your stuff isn't for everyone. It's business. That's okay. You don't go to a store and want to buy everything there either. So I think mental preparation for that is important. And then on the flip side, just having patience. Like I said, this is the end of my second year. And it's, I would say just in the past couple, in the past couple of months, I've started to feel pretty proficient with these. Doesn't mean I don't have more to learn. I definitely do. But I felt like I was stumbling along a bit trying to figure it out for the first year, year and a half, maybe five to seven different types of shows. If the first one doesn't go great, if the first three don't go great, don't get discouraged. There's a lot that goes into it. I mean, we've been talking for, for a good amount of time now, and there's probably more we could touch on. So patience is, is going to be key with trying to get all the stuff to work. Select a show that has wine. That would be my piece of advice. Not that only for wine? buyer that has wine, not only for oh, buyers wine. Who, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Those are your ideal yeah. customers. Yeah. Those are the ones you want to go to. Not only like, are they better customers at that point? The conversation is great. And if you don't do well at the show, I mean, just uh, it takes the edge off a little bit. I, it's funny you say that. Cause I, one of the ones I did down in Connecticut this past summer, it was a two day show at the end of the first day. I had a group of maybe four or five people come through and they were a bit toasty and the conversations were hilarious. Like we were laughing the whole time. The, the woman was like, you know what? I love this. I shouldn't purchase this right now. Um, we're on our way to dinner, but I'm going to come back tomorrow. I wasn't sure if she was going to or not, but the interaction was still one of the highlights of my weekend. So, you know, I mean, the personality factored in too, but the wine might have helped there too. So it, it can give me some, some fun memories along the way. Well, he's Kevin Jordan. I, I think that this conversation is one that you should probably listen to a few times because there's a lot in here. Like, listen through it, take notes, start a budget for one of these, figuring out like what you want to price your work at and create a spreadsheet to do that because that takes the emotion out of it. Set a goal for what you want to have at the end of a show in terms of um, income from that show and then set your prices according to that goal. That's a great way to do it too. And that takes a lot of the emotional ties to your work out of it. Uh, but Kevin, this has been extremely valuable for people who want to get into this world. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me.